Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico hey. and Jenna Ipcar. Yo. Today we are going to be talking about Blade, which played at BAM about a week ago. 35 millimeter print. We couldn't miss it for the world. Me and John were jumping out of our pantaloons. Jenna hadn't seen it. This was a perfect opportunity for her to see it. Such a great movie. Maybe she didn't really enjoy it as much as us, <laughs> but we can we can all discuss the film. It's a, it's a movie worth talking about. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, I want to say I did not enjoy it. It was fine. It was good, actually. I mean, like for, um, I mean, I didn't really go in expecting too much. I'll be honest. Right. <laughs> I know you guys were super excited about it. Yeah, it's fucking Blade. Yeah, I love Blade. It was, it does bullet time the year before the Matrix. It's so funny. And it has Chris Christopherson as a sidekick. All What's good. not to love? I didn't know you didn't like it coming out of it. You two, after the movie, fucking scampered off. I was very interested to see what you thought of it. And then you I know, I, disappeared I, into the night like reverse vampires. It sucked. <laughs> I had to go wake up early the next morning. I'm, I apologize. I wanted to hang out and talk about it too. So now this is my chance to talk about it. Yeah, this will be the, uh, the Blade discussion. I mean, I heard a little bit of what you were talking about about it when I didn't, we got out of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I didn't dislike it at all. I thought it was enjoyable, actually. It was just, it was simple. I like that. Yep. Like, I, it was just straightforward. Like, you're right in the action. You don't have to waste any time. Yeah, there's no origin story. Yeah, and the origin story is really easy. You know, like... Um, it's like a sentence or two. That's all you really right. need. It's a little bit of imagery right at the beginning and then maybe a sen sentence or two later on to clarify if you didn't get it. And that was all you needed. Yeah. And meanwhile, we're stuck in like origin story, like purgatory yeah. <laughs> now. Well, it was interesting watching it again because there's that part where Whistler talks about um, how he became Blade's sidekick. And he's talking about his family got killed by vampires like when he was younger. I hadn't seen the movie in years. And I always remember that being like a very long monologue. But when you actually hear it, it's literally, I think, two sentences, three sentences. Yeah. And it's just they're the most evocative sentences it's it's a quietly great piece of screenwriting like every word is perfectly in place to make you see an image and the way he delivers it you know he he's telling it to um their new partner the hematologist and he's not even looking at her mm. as he says it but he's not breaking up or anything because he can tell it's something that he's lived with a long time and he knows exactly how to express it but it's something like i can't remember the exact wordings but it, it's almost exactly was there was a drifter came by he toyed with us first, tried to make me pick the order I wanted them to die in. And that was it. Yeah. It was like, very, very evocative. It's a whole movie. Like even that word tried mm. there is such a brilliant piece of screenwriting. Because then you start to picture, well, he didn't succeed. And you know, like old Whistler. So I don't know about you, but like I had the movie in my head of like young Chris Christopherson in like 1970s Texas Chainsaw. Right. Rural Texas, like fighting this old drifter vampire over the course of one night. Absolutely. And just like for the next 10 minutes, like that movie was sprawling out in my head. Yeah. And it never could have lived up to that. If they'd done flashbacks yeah. or whatever, it was just been horrible. Yeah. Like it's, it's the power of just those couple sentences that really make it sing. Yeah, and that plus, performance. Yeah. And it explains 100% his attitude, yeah. who he is, everything about him. Like now you don't question anything. You're not like, why is this old craggly white dude living in like a basement or a garage? Yeah helping out, just like hating everybody. And then you're like, oh, fair enough. I yeah. hate everyone too. <laughs> I think that's kind of the, the 
Trick to Blade and why it's so much better than almost any other. It actually, I think, probably is flat out my favorite superhero movie mm. to the point where I almost wouldn't even call it one because it feels so different from the other ones. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is that casting is so good across the board. Yeah. You know, I mean, Snipes is so funny, mm-hmm. but he's never like joking. Like, he, yeah, he's it's never, not Demolition Man funny. Yeah, it's it's Shaft funny. Yeah. I mean, it's when you think about two years later, they remade Shaft with Samuel L. Jackson. They messed up. It should have been Snipes because mm. he's playing Shaft in that movie. Oh, yeah. It's just these like very small, like the part near the beginning when he nails the guy to the wall with the spikes and he shoots the one out of the shotgun and then he cocks and he gets his other shoulder with the other one and he like fist pumps just as he walks over to him. <laughs> this is a really tiny beat, but it's just like yep. that little glimmer of enthusiasm is something you don't see in any of the other uh, other superhero movies that often. Every little motion of that uh, he, he makes during the film is so yeah. iconic and perfect and the perfect take of it. You might not realize this, John, but that is like one of the defining scenes in film history for me. Yeah. The opening of Blade. Oh, yeah. When I was shooting both the movies I made, I like took that one apart and looked at the editing of it. And it's just like, it gives you so much so quickly. And it's so like weird and kind of off kilter and like funny without, you know, ever breaking. You know what I mean? Like there, there's yeah. such a sense of humor to that action. And, and then like down to the fact, and they never address it. Like a lesser movie. You can imagine like a Joss Whedon movie, like addressing this. They never bring up the fact, but... Blade walks into that room full of shower heads spilling blood and is perfectly bone dry. Yep. <laughs> and it's just... This it's life. a great little comic book logic that yeah. just that's, takes over. That's 100%. It. That's the best thing about Blade for me is that it, it was the, probably one of the best comic adaptations because it felt like a comic and it looked like a comic in all of the best possible ways. Yeah, all the streets had like one piece of newspaper floating in the air. <laughs> yeah, right. or even just like, you know, yeah, the, the way that people looked, everyone covered in in that blood just reminds... I yeah. could see the, the, the comic book like pages yeah. mm-hmm. in everything. And the fact that it's not like tied down to a real city. Right. You yeah. know, it's this sort of like any city. I think it's supposed to be patterned off Philly. I always yeah, got I that sense. Yeah, I couldn't figure out where it was. Because there's a Pennsylvania driver's license in it and there's a lot of bridges or so just thought oh, fair Philly. Enough, yeah. But like, it's not, like it's not the Philly skyline. It's not, you know, in the real world the way say, um, like the Marvel stuff is. It's mm-hmm. in this, it doesn't have to create, you know, an alternate universe New York that gets destroyed and rebuilt or whatever. It just is this sort of like singular, like any city. I'm so glad they didn't destroy the city, bringing that up. Yeah, the stakes are so low in it. Right, yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, like, La Magra is kind of like, it's supposed to be like maybe the end of the world, but like, there's not really any bystanders in Blade. Yeah. You know, there's not really any like destruction on a on a big scale and there's not really any um maybe that's also why it also felt like a comic book movie is because it was so close it was so yeah. focused on characters that idea that you get this parts of one line that, that makes you sort of think and stop and, and imagine what happened yeah. in the past is so comic book you can imagine the the comic book that would have been written about like whistler when he right. was younger it would have been called blade zero probably yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it would have had like a painted dusty cover yeah you know like you can be sepia yeah yeah everything is so vivid and like on point in that movie definitely i also you know the other thing that it kind of made me think about was that's like a movie where i thought why aren't more superheroes black or any other race because you look at that you look at blade and you're like man he's not doing anything different than any other superhero 
And there's really nothing, you know, like, why wouldn't, you know, like, I don't know all that you hear about all of these, like, you know, comic book fans who flip out the second they like turn, you know, Thor into a woman or they like, you know, change Spider-Man into someone who's Asian. I don't know. I'm making that up now, but <laughs> it's not, breaking sound news. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, why not? You know, you look at Blade, like what, there's nothing in Blade. The only part of Blade where I was like, hell yeah, social like commentary was, uh, when the vampire comes out, it's like killing everyone in the hospital. He grabs the the injured woman and all the police start shooting at him. And he goes, yeah. come on. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's Which about accurate. Which is another accurate. piece that felt like a scene from a black exploitation movie to me. Yeah. yeah. There's very much like that side of Blade. It was cool to see it part of this series that we saw that at BAM, which was... Uh, right, we should definitely yeah, mention that. It was part aspect. of an Afrofuturism series, which is, uh, it's still going on. And it's about sort of black representations of sci-fi and alternate realities and that kind of stuff. Yeah, Sun Ra style. Yeah. Brother from another planet. Um, and when you see Blade in that context, you think about it in like a slightly different way. And there's a lot going on with race in Blade and it's all very under the surface. Right. But there's a lot of talk of, you know, like pure blood mm -hmm. and like mixed blood. And there's when um, Deacon Frost is out in the sunlight, this was another scene of my youth and he's got <laughs> the kid you know, and he's got like his claw to the kid's neck. Which is such a great surreal scene. Yeah. And they're talking about, you know, all these people around us are like wretches and this and that and regular people aren't fucking anything. It takes place in Chinatown. Yeah. And it's never addressed. But there's a lot of um, like you feel like there's like interesting like coding going on in the movie, you know, like like. Well, there's Asian uh, imagery and stuff that keeps popping up yeah. in very small ways. Like I love that. Like a John Carpenter movie. Absolutely. And I love that, that ghost dog aspect where he like goes to like the um, the shop where he buys like the garlic and it's like the black guy with like all the like acupuncture and like yeah. tinctures and stuff. And yeah. And it's just this like one little scene. That's another that's the most black exploitation part of the movie. And yeah. that's another one where like you feel like that guy would have had his own comic book. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Where I mean, just, and he's instantly awesome. That guy. Yeah. And they, and Blade has a different relationship with him than with anybody else. Yep. There's this kind of like in this together rapport that even with Whistler, he doesn't have. It makes me want to watch it again, just to sort of like watch what it does with that. But it, it, it has that sort of seventies um, superfly kind of vibe where it's, it's like talking a lot just in who is on screen at any time. Mm hmm. You and know? it adds such a depth and emotion to all the characters too. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, that you don't get from all these sort of remakes of Spider-Man or Superman that are just sort of flat. And I think they're flat because you don't, no one really, everyone comes in knowing who Superman and Spider-Man is, but like with, if it's just another sort of like bland, like white dude, then you're just going to think, all right, like one dimensional. I think that if they change something up with race or anything, the, the sex or whatever, it would be interesting. It adds this whole other dimension and whole other side and whole other context for yeah. a character and like blade is like so that's what like a big part of what makes blade pretty cool i think Definitely. a lot of a lot of what they need to change up is story because they're afraid to go low-key they're afraid to tell like a right. simple like a comic book story is like what like 20 30 pages pretty self-contained you know sometimes it it spans a couple uh issues but it's you know it's mostly a pretty self-contained story and then you look at these like comic book movies and they're like huge fucking like 800 page like jk rowling kind of novels like they yeah. pack so much in there because they feel like they have to now they have to justify you know the movie ticket price what people are expecting it's like very bloated yeah, yeah. whereas blade is like 
I think Blade is like two hours, but it feels it like 90 feels minutes. so short. A lot of that is the editing. Every yeah. scene sort of bleeds into the scene before it. There, there's very little fat in that movie. Yeah. It's, it's a very fucking lean movie. But if we can go back to that point, because I think that one's really interesting, because I think the race and sex thing is so important. We can't just keep having a cinema where every lead is a, is a white man. Like, mm -hmm. that's insane. We can't do it. But even beyond that, it's really what's striking is that he's a character who comes from a culture. He's not just yeah. like a cipher. It makes me think of um, probably my second favorite superhero movie, which is the original Superman. Well, the original um, 70s one, not the 50s one with uh, Christopher Reeves, where so much of that movie is just about a kid from the country who goes out to the city, mm -hmm. you know? And it does so much with just the imagery of moving from rural Central America to the coast. And it's it's you don't see that in this entire generation. I would say of top-tier action films in general, except for the Fast and the Furious movies. You really don't get that sort of sense that people come from a place that makes them think and behave differently than people who come from a different place. Mm. And that's all over Blade. Even in uh, Deacon Frost, you don't really know where he comes from, but you just get this sense that he's different. You, know, yeah. you never find out like when he became a vampire, but you always, at least I always have it in my head, like I feel like it had to be sometime more modern than the rest of them. I think it was on the set of Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like, uh, like I was trying to figure that out too when I was watching, because I've seen Blade, like, and I'm sure you have too, like over 20 times easily. Yeah, every day, man, every day. <laughs> um, What's he, funny is I've only ever seen any of the sequels once a piece. Oh God, yeah. Maybe twice for the second one, but. It would be hard to watch those as many times. It'd be painful. Um, yeah. But he mentions, you know, turning Blade's mom back in like the 70s. Yeah. So you get the sense that it'd have to be pre seventies, and he Deacon seems to me like a guy who kind of changes with the trends. Yeah. Like right now, he's really into the whole sort of techno-y nineties, you know, happy but hardcore. You can see him at Woodstock, right? Right. Yeah. Like he could he, have been like a Kerouac Burroughs contemporary. Yeah. He's almost like a Zelig character who just sort of chameleons himself around yeah. what, what's cool, you know, because he just has to be really fucking cool all the time. Yeah, and they never overplay that. They never push that. But it's just this, like, you're exactly right. Like, you could see him with Kerouac. You could see him in all these different places. And mm -hmm. they never they never do it, which, like, lets you do it. Yeah. Right. And um, and Blade is really, like, an exercise in, like, what you don't need to keep, keep one of those movies afloat. You don't find out at the end they're at that, like, archaeological dig. And that's where they, um, they jack Blade to that thing and caught him and the blood's coming and everything. You don't really know they have that place until they're there. Don't they even say like, uh, oh, I can't believe you guys fucking forgot about this shit. Yeah. Like <laughs> and it's just like one and done. And you, it's just it's moving so fast. And at that point, because that's near the end of the movie. So you're kind of you're settled into it. You're just like, all right, just, you know, keep it going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't you don't need those like long breaks to like justify why there's some strange vampire tomb under new york that everybody forgot about <laughs> one of my favorite side characters in that film is udo kier's character yeah which talk is about great casting probably the best delivery of the word vampire i've ever heard the way that udo kier says vampire i can't do it justice but just look up that scene that boardroom scene if you're at home listening and just just listen to him say the word vampire and it's better than anybody else has ever said it that i can think of <laughs> He's such a great little character in that film. Like he, he's one of those underrated character actors that whenever I see him, I just get so excited. Like I love him in the Ace Ventura 
they go to his like fancy party and he's just has this great like deadpan like very stiff demeanor to him and he just he's awesome in every single scene with him he basically like almost upstages jim carrey in the scenes that he has with him he's a great actor he was someone i kind of wanted to see him in his apartment like Mm -hmm. at some (laughs) penthouse you know the only thing i guess that my real complaint about blade was that like the sort of forced jokes by the end like they thought for some reason they needed to like jazz it up with some crappy one-liners and that Weird vampire dude guy. Well, Donald Logue, I think you mean. Oh, yeah. Donald Logue. Maybe. I, I thought he was so funny in it. Which ones are you thinking of? I don't know. Whenever I mean, he's like wearing the sunglasses. Yeah, it's like maybe if as, as a child I would have laughed. But. I love his arc. Like, yeah. jokes aside, that's a great arc for like a side character throughout a film. Yeah, where, like just he just keep gets getting cut up. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, that might be. Um, I, I think I've said this before on this, but um, I have this thing with the Terminator movies, where I'm pretty sure everybody who saw them when they came out likes Terminator Two more than Terminator One. Mm-hmm. But anybody who sees them now likes Terminator One more because they don't think the jokes in Terminator Two have aged that well. Yeah, that's me. I mean, T Two, great film, but. If I'm going to go back and watch a Terminator movie, it's going to be the first one. Yeah, because, you didn't see it until late, right? Yeah, I didn't see it until way later. I guess my parents just didn't let me see it when I was a kid or whatever. Yeah, I saw that one like when I was like five. And I guess you get inoculated to that kind of humor. And I ended up seeing Terminator 1 before I saw Terminator 2. I feel like it seems like the kids that saw T2 saw that as their, their first one. And that was yeah. like, it's a very interesting, I don't want to give away <laughs> the... Maybe I guess I can because I think everybody's seen the Terminator movies by now. But that whole, that tonal shift of Arnold Schwarzenegger's character from the first one to the second one. Yeah. It's a it's a very different tonal shift if you see the second one before the first one. That's it's, true. Yeah. It seems like you're going from three-dimensional character to one-dimensional character, which is a very weird thing to go from. It makes it seem like the first one is... A little less ambitious. Actually, I would say more than that. I think you're right on track, but I would say it's true of Sarah Connor because Sarah, by necessity, is a more unique character in the second movie. Mm -hmm. So when you see them in reverse, it's almost like seeing Last Crusade first and then you go back to the other indies. This happened to a friend of mine and you're like, well, they're good, but I kind of wish Sean Connery was there with them. Why did they do it that way? Why did they? How do you see three? I don't. I. (laughs) I yelled at her about it. I was like, "You can't. It has last in the title. You can't. You can't just do that." But you know what I mean? Like the you you builds to um, Sarah as the kill machine, and when you see it in reverse, she's kind of the letdown. Mm. But you know, it it still works. I mean, they're they're both so good. Udo Kier, though, I think is cool, and I I think I, I wish the movie had done more with this, but like. One of his first roles was Dracula in Blood for Dracula. <laughs> right. And like, I almost wish they had rounded out that like table of vampire elders with just like other people who played Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> like it should have been like him and Christopher Lee, oh, yeah. and, you know, like all those guys. That'd Paul be a Nashie. great, like almost Zucker Brothers kind of like touch on that yeah. scene. Like it might've been a little much, but it would have been great <laughs> to just have like Christopher Lee, and, you know, just like all the old guys in there. Oh, yeah. I also think the sequels, the mistake the sequels made was they should have just kept hiring different outlaw country guys to be Blade's sidekick because that was a really good dynamic. Yeah, yeah. And they got Christopherson back. But Who would you pick? I think Dwight Yoakam would have oh, been a yeah. really well, good Well, he was great pick. in Crank. I mean, yeah. he was half... Sling Blade. Yeah, half the fun of Crank was Dwight Yoakam. Yeah, I think he'd be great. Uh, they still could have gotten cash at that point, probably. Mm-hmm. It was near the end of his life, but you might have been able to get cash. Willie Nelson would have been great. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Right? Willie Nelson and Snipes. That would have been a really good team up. That would be like the stoner third one or yeah. something. 
Yeah, it's that would have been better than Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel. Yeah. I would have liked the third one if it was Willie Nelson. <laughs> Throw Jerry Reed in there. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> so, Levon Helm. Yeah. I want to ask you about the bloodbath scene because that was like a very huge moment for me and I assume for John when we were kids. Like just that opening scene. And you didn't know about that scene ahead of time, right? Uh, I know that John was very excited for a blood orgy that was going to happen. <laughs> was it was it effective? I thought it was really good. I mean, that from that scene, I could see, you know, the comic book from it. I mean, right. like it just the, the framing of these sort of faces all you could see that it would be this like panel with like the black ink outline of everybody's like faces that suddenly yeah. turn evil but it was completely covered in and red and you'd see the lights as like yeah. these big like spears coming down from exactly the top. like you could see you could and there'd be absolutely like sound effects all it. over the sides and like boom all over the like <laughs> tilted all over the panel yeah with the like with the dj there like i actually i thought that was a, a pretty great opening that scene always makes me tense even though like the actual like content and gore isn't really oh it was creepy that much yeah like, definitely. it's just the smart the build-up is really yeah. smart when they wheel i I forgot all about it because when you see it on TV, you don't really register it for what it is. But when they wheel that, like when they're in the slaughterhouse and they wheel like that row of like mummified people past mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And he just gets like a glimpse of it. I totally forgot that was there. And that was like, woof. And just like the hostility of everybody at first. And you're trying to yeah. figure out like, why? What's going on? Well, I assumed he was going to get eaten. I'll give you that, that much. But like, it definitely, it, but, like, it, it was creepy. Who probably was the. Yeah. And how yeah. and. No, I, it was definitely, it was a good, it set the mood completely for the rest of the film. I mean, like, it, the, it was a kind of a creepy movie considering it was, like, also a little, it was, like, you know, a little dopey. Like, it feels like a comic book. It's it, campy. It, yeah, all right, campy, that's the right word for it. But, you know, it, it, there was a good menace that kind of ran through it. Mm -hmm. that, that, and maybe that's why the ending kind of, like, that menace went away. And, I and can suddenly see that. there was, yeah. like, these jokey things and then... His mother being around, I wasn't thrilled with, but like it was okay. But then she was trying to like make out with her own son. Who, P.S., how did she know it was him? He I was assume, like not even I born. They told her. Yeah, but then how did they, she they, know his they name? Gave her, they gave her a heads like, up. How did he know a name? I mean, come on. Well, the, the whole thing they say every time you see the vampires, every time you see Stephen Dorff, is he's always like, oh, hey, Blade, I've been keeping my eye on you. You know, he's always like, yeah, I know you. You're I blamed. guess. I love that idea also <laughs> that there's just like this dude rolling around, just like killing them. And they kind of know about him. They don't really know what to do with him. Like the part where he uh, he beats up the cop in the vampire owned nightclub. <laughs> right. And it's just like they know who he is. He's got the sword. He's got everything. And it's all vampires there. And they're just like hanging out. Nobody's going to help that kid. But like nobody's going to bust this up. And had this really like quietly like live and let live type of vibe. Yeah. Which sort of made sense because that's what they were. The old guys were talking about that. They had that sort of detente. Right. It was blade. like it, it, it's not going to seep up to the higher ranks. Like he's not going to take out like all those 12 guys. So it's yeah. kind of like a. It's almost uh, like he's a one man mafia. In yeah. That neighborhood. And like you kind of you know it's a problem, but. You know, you're going to leave. You it hope alone. it just works itself out or you can bribe them later down the line yeah. or, you know. Yeah. And it's like uh, Last Man on Earth, which is probably the best piece of vampire media anybody ever made, except put out of the post apocalypse and like into just regular life. Mm. Like the idea of just the one guy roaming around trying to eradicate them. It's probably the best adaptation of that story. And it's not even really one. Right. But just that the imagery of like the one against all of them and he's improbably winning. A lot of the effects looked really good in 35 millimeter. 
And I had actually seen the movie again with a friend of mine, like a couple weeks prior to even knowing about the screening coming up. And on DVD, you know, the effects, they just don't look as good. But there's something about 35 millimeter grain that just sort of hides the the edge of the CGI. Well, it also was a bad print. It was a bad print. And that always helps with bad yeah. CGI. Yeah. The sound was kind of bad. Sound was pretty bad. We should talk about that. It was pretty crackly throughout. It was like... And like, uh, a, like a yeah, really loud kind of white noise crackle. Yeah. There was no silence in that movie. Which yeah. maybe helped. <laughs> Let that be a, a lesson, though, for everybody out there about the importance of why film restoration is so important. Because mm -hmm. this is, I guess, a 17-year-old print of a major movie that nobody lost tabs of for a second. And that's in how bad shape it is just from yeah. like natural lifespan. So now imagine what like a movie no one was paying attention to looks like 30 years later. Right. When you try to run it. Sport film preservation for the sake of Blade. I definitely think the 35 millimeter played up the exploitation-y aspects, the exploitation y aspects, I should say. Like it just it made it feel not necessarily like a mid nineties movie. It felt almost implacable. And I just love that that quality that uh seeing a, a movie on film can bring where you lose your um banister yeah. as far as like time and space a little bit. The best description I've ever heard of Blade, and I wish so badly I could take credit for this was that it's like it was filmed in a world where the 80s never happened and the 70s just went right into the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect description. Yeah, it's got all the look of the 90s and all the soul of the 70s just right at the same time. Here's a question I always ask people who like Blade. Did you see It or The Matrix first? Uh, no, I saw Blade first because I saw Blade in the theater. How much did you like The Matrix when you saw it? I liked it a lot. Really? I didn't like it at all because all the cool shit it was doing was pretty much just shit Blade had done the year before. Blade was probably my favorite movie for a large chunk of my uh, childhood, but I think uh, Matrix was kind of a close second at a certain point. Look at the, the hallmarks of the Matrix, though. It's trench coats, bullet time. Oh, absolutely. Techno and a shootout in a lobby. Well, I think that's what... And look at Blade. Yeah, that's what we're seeing with the Wachowskis is that like... What we associate with them as far as what they contributed to film, you know, nobody's going to go back and say, well, they took this and that from Blade, but it's pretty much that's what they did. And you can see it in the, the lack of originality as they haven't been able to lift things since then, like Cloud Atlas and this new one that just came out that I forget the name of Jupiter, whatever. They, there's nothing that came directly before, like a year or two before that they can grab from and you know, do like a, a, an improv yes and with. Yeah. Like they're they're basically just like grabbing for whatever and throwing shit against the wall. Well, they're doing the George Lucas thing of like, well, the CGI is better. And you're like, that doesn't, doesn't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter. I forgot, though, that there is stone cold actual like a bullet time scene in that movie. Oh, yeah. When they're when he's Deacon's got that kid and Blade pulls his gun and fires those two shots at him and the speed ramps down. And you're behind those bullets and just watching as he dodges them. They saw that. They were taking notes. Yeah. His whole attire, man. Yeah. The sunglasses. The uh, He has better sunglasses than any of them did in oh, yeah. Matrix. Those and he just pulls them off frame. better. Yeah, the, in the Matrix, it looks like they're computer geeks. Yeah, in with Blade, the wireframe like, like John Lennon ones. It's like, that's that guy's fucking sunglasses. I love the bit at the end when Donald Logue gets his sunglasses. <laughs> I guess you didn't like that, I think. No, but it was I, dumb. Yeah. I love it. I think it's just such a funny uh, 
I, th- I think it's just so much fun because whenever you watch like an 80s action movie or a 90s one, the henchman's always like really the intense, like way too serious about his job one. Like in all the Bond Yeah, he's movies the brains or, of the bunch. Kinda. Yeah, or like Gary Busey and Lethal Weapon or like all them. The, the henchman's always like the real intense killer, uh, not fun, not funny one, super creepy. And in this one, he's just like kind of like along for the ride and, you know, just like doesn't want to be there. It's almost like they put like the hero and sidekick dynamic on the villain and henchman right. in this movie. You know, with like the the loner idealist hero uh, and the and the like goofy sidekick who's not very much help, but is fun. They just gave that to the bad guys. And the hematologist escapes that kind of like commando-esque whiny role. They treat her with a lot of respect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because that's my big problem with Commando is that it's just it's very the dynamic between the two of them is just very annoying. It's grating, yeah. Yeah, what was her name? The chick. I don't know how to pronounce her first name. It's like N. Boucher, I think. Right. I'm looking. At She's it. yeah, you're right. N. Boucher, right? Yeah. Karen. She played Karen. She uh, she was wonderful, and that was also interesting. Is that there wasn't a the sort of forced bullshit romance, was there? Or if there was, I don't even remember it, which is even well, better. Well, there was that pseudo sex scene towards the end, which is one of my favorite, like, fake sort of sex scenes that I've ever yeah. seen in film, where it's just him biting the shit out of her neck. Yeah, which is always, um, that's something that a lot of the other vampire movies you can tell want to do, but, like, I think Blade is one of the few ones that really had the guts to just get weird with that stuff. Yeah. Like, the the really creepily sexual dynamic between, like, the mother vampire and her son. There's all this, like... Oh, yeah. True Blood, like everything that, that True Blood's done, which is a pretty... I wouldn't even recommend that show, but it's come 100% from Blade, it seems. Now that I've seen really? Blade... I've I, never seen True Blood. There's so much in True Blood that I was like, man, this is just straight up lifted. And, like, I've seen a decent amount of vampire stuff, but, like... You know, the sort of like the true bloods or rather like uh, the high blood versus like, you know, humans and then the sort of interracial thing and the weird all fuck anything, anyone like stuff. And like, I don't know, it reminded me a lot of true blood. Well, isn't uh, isn't the source material for true blood just like with uh, Fifty Shades of Grey? Isn't it like doesn't it come from writers yeah, who some, started with fan like fiction? Kind of, I, I don't remember if True Blood was fan fiction, but it was certainly like romance novel. But, it's but a, she was she was writing a blog or something. Yeah, it's those it's these this new crop of like authors that they they started out just writing on the Internet and writing these sort of like. Yeah, they probably saw Interview with the Vampire and Blade. And yeah, then, like, exactly. Created something. Yeah. Yeah. Which is weird, which is kind of like a unique thing that's going on right now where it's like it's everything is very fan servicey because it's it, the origins are really tied into like pleasing fellow fans and what like, hey, fan servicey. well, fan servicey, meaning like you're doing all the things that a fan would want and feels like they don't get. And so like it's like an overload of all that, like the Fifty Shades of Grey was it was an overload of um, stuff that they wanted from Twilight that they just didn't feel like they got. And enough of people, enough people felt that way that Fifty Shades kind of became a thing because of that. It was like, it's like these, this is what a subsection really desires from these sort of dynamics. And it just sort of plays that up. Much like with True Blood, it seems like it's like all these like, like fan, fan fiction is always about like, you know, the, uh, is it called like slash or whatever is that? What it, yeah. When you, when you or, ship two people. Yeah, exactly. It's like a lot of constant shipping information. <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes from like soap opera. Yeah. Origins, I mean, it's basically, I, no, no, well, uh, I mean, fan fiction and well, slash fiction came mm-hmm. out of Star Trek. 
it came out of people saying, hey, we want Kirk and Spock to do, go at it. <laughs> and so they, they started writing these Which fantasies. Which is still a big movement and still bullshit because that's, as usual, leaving McCoy out in the lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I don't trust anybody who likes Spock more than McCoy. Never have. Oh, I love Never McCoy. Will. McCoy was my favorite. Me if too. you guys are really bored, you should go to my old Twitter, which was uh, FML McCoy, because McCoy gets fucked over in every single <laughs> episode. And so I tweeted once an episode about it. Anyhow, but... <laughs> nice little plug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I haven't updated it in years, but maybe if all of you follow it, I'll update it. Um, What's interesting about that sort of... Yeah, I agree with you. It's that it, it is fan service. It's like, well, here, like, here, there's someone sat down and wrote this really long story and they had like this philosophy behind it and they had a real message they wanted to put out or at least they wanted to put out a world or maybe even a specific character with Slash and with fan fiction. It's more like I want this one romantic setup. Like that's all I want. Like yeah. I don't really care. Both people have to be hot. They can be any sex. They can be the same sex. They can be different sex. They can be changing sex. They could be someone who was a man but now i want them to be a woman you know like can, anything doesn't matter who the person and all is. the hot characters have to sort of like have this incestuous like bubble where right. everybody's fucking each other and like it constantly changes and everybody gets what they want from and there's it always the this like setup of like you know something like tension there's always tension sexual tension like never ending and that that's 100 what like true blood is what twilight is what all of these sort of like you know but I love you. No, I can't like kind of high school romance, you know, oh. an understanding of it. But uh, it's all just that. build up for sex scenes. I mean, replace that with murder, though. When you're describing the state of uh, early 19th century British literature that Dickens came out of when they would take uh, real killings in the London area and they would sort of fictionalize them a little bit and always add some like pretty young girl and like a disgraced alcoholic doctor. Hmm. And they would pound them all into this little uh box and then you know sometimes they would pull one of the characters out from one and have them team up with another one from another and they all had these exact beats that they hit every time and it was all building up to like the thrill of like the murder in the end and then right. the other thrill of like the always like creepily like pseudo erotic like sacrifice of somebody at the end you know when they when they go down the river for the crimes it's kind of just the state of I don't think it's new. I mean, I yeah, yeah of course. I mean, but I, and that's I think is very human in a lot of ways. At, yeah, I mean, look at sort of like medieval um night fantasies, you know, they're all Oh kind yeah, of the they're same. all the same thing. It really you know, it makes me think of um the Kimmy Schmidt, I don't know if you guys watched it, but the, there's like one of the running jokes is that her and you know she was locked in she was a mole woman, she was like locked up by a crazy person, preacher. And then she gets out and then she has this roommate and he's constantly like, "Please tell me more information." And like, you know, and she'll try and say something that's like, oh, you know, they want me to go to trial. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm 100 percent going to watch you. I'm sorry. I meant to say I'm 100 percent going to watch your trial. Like you can't say anything else except for like, I want the lurid details yeah. of like your torture. <laughs> and that's 100 percent like I think what we are for the most part as human beings. And that's what Twilight is. And that's what all this sort of fan fiction is. And that's fine. Or I don't think at, it's bad. Even comic book, actually. Look at the world Blade came out of where you had these 24 page stories and they were always, you know, exact same beats. And then they built up to uh, somebody who everybody thought was weak, proving they were strong at the end. Right. And that was the fantasy of the whole thing. I mean, everything it was always for sort of like underdeveloped kids who, <laughs> you know, they looked at it and they could be like, you know, they could pretend they were saving the world at the end. I don't think the criticism is about tropes because cr tropes exist and like, that's fine again. Like, but I think that the, the idea of like fan service versus 
I'm still not 100% clear on what that means, to be honest, which please don't mistake is an invitation to learn any more about it. Because <laughs> I think the trouble is anytime I start to like read an article or whatever about this, I just like pass out. Rightly so. Through. Rightly well, yeah, so. rightly so. But I, I would say that basically, I don't know, it comes down to I would rather have one person sitting in a room creating something that, and then presenting it to me or to several people sitting in a room creating something and presenting it to me than, than crowdsourcing Hey, right. here's two characters. Where do you want them to go? How do you want them to look? What do you want them to do? Because that gets it's more tepid. Yeah, you know, and that's, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's really what I mean by like fan the service of the yeah. crowd. Yeah, and it's just like like you know everyone. Yeah, everyone wants that. You know, like you look at like or like a wonderful show like Sherlock, uh, the I hate newest that one. Show. Oh, really? I amazing. But then it's it's gotten downhill. Him. I cannot stand him. He's amazing, but. <laughs> <laughs> It's gone downhill because I think that there be, there's such a huge fan surge. And I think that the writers are now turning to the fans and getting information and ideas from them and, and taking hints, which can and can't be good. I mean, like it sometimes it just doesn't work. I don't well, like the fans to have the upper hand. Yeah. Do you know that, that was Arthur Conan Doyle's problem back when he was writing mm. Sherlock Holmes? That's why he killed off Sherlock Holmes. Right. And then they were going to kill him. Not, yeah. Could not deal with the fans. Right. And then there was such a clamor. He had to revive Sherlock Holmes right. from the dead <laughs> just because the fans were that fucking crazy. Right. The great thing about uh, George R. R. Martin is he just doesn't fucking give a shit whatsoever, like what the fans think, like which is really refreshing for the fantasy genre in this climate right now where like fans are treated like, well, if you don't have the fans, then like, what do you have? It's like he's in this great position where like he never cared whatsoever and he still doesn't care, even though it's a big popular show. It seems like the showrunners care like a little bit, but as long as he stays not caring and will never care, like the quality is going to stay really, really high. Because I think that's what you need for like, you, you need to be thinking like 10 steps ahead of your fans. Like if your fans are telling you what the next move should be, you should in your head know, like, no, that's not going to work because then these other nine things won't come into place and we won't get this awesome, amazing thing. Well, right. the showrunners are the facing go. worse pressures with it than he is. Because mm -hmm. I think it's so different when it's actors and when it's a broader crowd. But... um it's it's interesting to look at that in the context of our boy Blade because like maybe the the miracle of that movie as opposed to the other superhero movies is like it didn't it, that character doesn't really have fans like I I read some of um I never was a comic book person but if I ever was it was always for horror comics it was just I I liked those kind of stories more and I thought they were always more fun than the superhero stuff so I was like familiar with him when I was a kid and you know everything but he it wasn't something where it was like. You know, Spider-Man, so many people feel so, oh, man. so attached to that imagery and just that stupid mask and his dumb face is just like <laughs> such an important thing for and so his many dumb people. dumb jokes, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being a dick about it, but like you can't really denigrate that someone for that, for, you know, who they who they latch on to. And, and, and I think it becomes a huge obstacle for the people making those movies. Because remember... A big part of the reason people liked that first Batman movie, all the comic book people liked it because they said it felt like the comic books. And they said none of the other comic book movies did. And it was the same thing with that first X-Men movie. They were like, this is like the comic books, which I don't know. I never read any of them. And then you, you started to hit this point where like they started to, the pendulum switched into the other direction. And then now they're not really movies anymore. You know, they, they don't. Right. They lost like, their, yeah. their foothold. Like when I watch Blade now in the light of having seen the, having run the gauntlet of the Avengers movies, it's like, it feels like a movie. Yeah. yeah. I'm just so Big happy time. it feels like a movie and not 
a very long prologue to the next movie. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so the conclusion we've come to, Blade is a movie. Yeah. I mean, come on. A solid Blade, movie. That's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like Blade Trinity doesn't feel like a movie. Not a movie. It feels like... Um, is that what fan service is? Is it Blade Trinity? I would... Yeah, it's actually a pretty good... Uh, it just yeah. feels like a lot of stuff is in there for the for the sake of expectation. Yep. And for the sake of following um the the path of least resistance. Yeah, there we go. That's that's uh I think he's fan got service. it by George, he's got it. We just watched John D'Amico realize what fan service <laughs> is. That was beautiful. That's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> he looks a little shell shocked. He's like, if that's what that is. <laughs> That's a bad oh scene. You God. can't do that. That's <laughs> that's what killed Star Wars. Yeah. And not even in the prequels. Everybody likes to blame it on the prequels. That's what killed Star Wars in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you at home that can't see this, we're just seeing like a lot wash over John D'Amico <laughs> right now. just staring at John. <laughs> <laughs> this is like... It took Blade to learn this lesson. Yeah. Was it did. <laughs> All right. We will be back soon with a great little question from the mailbag. See you soon. And now, Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. All right, so last night I got my first peek at Unfriended and I had one question. I found after after it was over, I found the two fattest, nerdiest guys in the theater I could find. I ignored all of the little girls and the couples or whatever. I found the two fattest dudes in the back. And as they were walking out, I asked them, why the fuck didn't anybody take a goddamn screenshot in that movie? And do they ever take a goddamn screenshot? I'm not trying to like spoil anything right now or anything because I haven't seen the end of it or anything. I, it was pretty slow. So I watched like probably the first two thirds or so. And it's really entertaining to say the least. However, they keep trying to use all these same horror tropes that other horror movies use when it's trying to do a new thing so it doesn't really make sense right sometimes it succeeds for a second and it's like okay like say if you were typing to someone and you know you get that feeling where you want to type something and you retype it a bunch of times and keep erasing it it showed that and that was really cool because you know it gets you in the characters heads but like whenever something like out of the ordinary happened it's like, you know how in other horror movies, the character always thinks that no one's going to believe them, and so they like don't act or whatever, and they do the stupid shit, and you, it leads you to be all like, don't go in there, and don't do that, and don't do this, and why didn't you call the cops? Well, like, it's the same shit, except the whole time you're just like, just fucking screen cap the shit. Like, there is a part, literally, where a guy asks her, like, what was said to her, and you see her trying to copy and paste it. And it's like, dude, nobody's going to fucking believe you. you're all scared. No one's going to fucking believe you. But why the fuck can't you just show them? And like, I understand the whole like, oh, if something's after you or whatever, like if you piss it off by doing something that reveals it or whatever, it's not going to work like and all that shit. Like, OK, fine. But at least show them trying, you know, and um, so I hope that's not too spoilery. I mean, because it doesn't really show. I did. I'm not really telling you anything that happens in the movie. It's just like little stuff like that kind of bugged me because the whole time I was just like, really, you guys, come on. So that's, that's how I feel about Unfriended so far. I'll uh, 
get back to you on it when I've seen it more times. Thanks, Chloe. And now back to the show. And we're back. First question is from Stephen. Well, actually the only question today. That question is, what is the most appropriate way to stalk celebrities who are filming nearby? Which I think is a great fucking question. That's a great question. And it's something we kind of know about because, you know, we live in New York City. We see production shooting. A lot of times it's like for like commercials or TV episodes and it's like very isolated, simple things. But there have been times when there have been shooting actual movies around here. Like they shot a War of the Worlds over here. They said it was Boston or something. Yeah, we have a lot of townhouses around in this neighborhood that look like Boston. Yeah, you know, both my parents uh, worked in film. My dad's a cameraman. My mom used to be a sound recordist. And so I've also heard their sort of stories of of people coming over and approaching and and how to do it right and, and how not to do it. And I think a big part of it is do not get in the way. If you want to stalk someone, I'm there with you. I'm 100% for stalking. 100% about it. I've done it multiple times. Love it. Fantastic. Gotten photographs, autographs, all that kind of stuff. Let's hear some stories, man. Well, you know, here's the thing. Well, I just want to say what you don't do is that if you see somebody shooting something, don't walk over, tap the sound person and go, hey, what are you guys doing? Don't do that. That's bad. Don't walk in front of the camera and be like, hey, what are you guys shooting? Don't harass the people as they're in the middle, clearly in the middle of working. Everyone's always very fucking busy. Yeah. And they're paying for every minute that they're out there. So, you know, don't be a dick. It's like, I think the number one rule. And then I guess the other thing is to either show up right when they're starting, like, you know, setting up or right when they're breaking down. Those are your two best options or to hang around all day and figure it out. Because at that point, my, you know, like for War of the Worlds, I managed to get like a, a piece of um, the alien vine where they like, you know, mm. basically like covered an entire playground with this, that alien, that red alien vine for that. This was up in Prospect Park, right? Yeah. And so like, How'd you know, you get a piece of it. My father actually was walking the dog right past it. <laughs> and then he sees it and they're like, you know, breaking the set down and goes, hey, can I get a piece of this? And they're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so now I have this great alien vine hanging around. And this is you got to take thing. a picture of that. Maybe we'll post it on the site. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, let's. I have to find it. I think it's that box now. Oh. It was in my dorm room for a long time. If you find it, yeah, send it. And then uh, same thing, actually, in that same trip where my father walking his dog was, um, you know, uh, he as he's walking, he sees Tom Cruise get out of a, a cab, you know, or a limo, whatever the heck, to walk on to set. And all these girls start to swarm him. And everyone gets an autograph because, you know, he just gotten out of the car. He was actually apparently a very nice guy. Uh, I've only you know, ever heard good things about him. Yeah, he took the time, like really, like posed for pictures, yeah, like to talk to everyone, pro. and then, uh, you know, then walk to work. You know, like he was gone. So, like that's definitely, I would say, is to hang around. So that happens know? to me on the way to work too. It's <laughs> fine. You deal with it. You, you find all those ways. girls, man. All those smugettes. Yeah, it's, are, you know, it's a little tough sometimes. D'Amico shippers. What are you gonna do? <laughs> I think if you're polite, people are typically appreciated. If you're polite and you have good timing. Yeah. Like Nicolas Cage, I, I managed to stalk. And then, oh, that is a picture I can give you. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> got to meet the cage? There's a little videos that, because he was coming out of the Apple store. This wasn't on a movie set, but he was coming out of the Apple store having done in one of the, they do like uh, talks at the uh, Soho Apple right. store. And I Sure, ran, he wasn't just... Working there? <laughs> yeah, he's probably working there. I Research ran, for a role. He's, he's in work. a lot of debt. He might be. <laughs> he was super friendly, though, and literally going from a door to uh, like a, a black cab. 
So he had like maybe like 12 feet to walk, you know, like not even like, and all I, I just sort of like stood there and he was signing, he came out. I was always people kind of waiting around for him. Anyhow, he was signing autographs. So I just go, excuse me, like, you know, just friendly. And he came right over and I was like, oh, can I take a picture? He's like, yeah, sure. You know, absolutely. Got a picture with him. And I was like, thanks. And then goodbye, you know, like, and that was fine. You know, like I didn't try to hold him down or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mob him, but I've had pretty decent run-ins with people, but I've, I've not tried to really do much more than, than politely ask for, you know, kind of what I wanted and then, and then leave. Yeah. I think you can't but really bug people in restaurants or, you know, that that's a little different. I once saw Wallace Shawn eating alone in a restaurant. He was, could have been your dinner with Andre. Yeah. This was when I was a kid and like all I knew him from was clueless. So he was just like the teacher from Clueless for me. <laughs> I, I had no awareness of like my dinner with Andre or any of that. And like he was just Did sitting there. Princess Bride? Oh yeah. I guess Princess Bride too. And um, yeah, he was just sitting there and he was eating bok choy. And it was just, <laughs> it's an image that is in my brain, whether I want it to be there or not for the rest of my life, just Wallace Shawn sitting eating bok choy. Like I, I can see everything about that in my head very vividly. And it's, it's interesting how like these moments with famous people, you take them with you for the rest of your life. Like that's just this thing that you never forget because you place so much importance for them. It's like, it's just a total blur because you're just one of a hundred people they meet that day. But all those hundred people, they're going to take that little moment with them for the rest of their lives. So even something as simple as Wallace Shawn eating bok choy is just imprinted on my memory. Like I could do like that, um, like there's that autistic artist that can like draw like cityscapes <laughs> yeah. from like going up in a helicopter yeah. and coming down. I could do that for Wallace Shawn eating bok choy if I were good enough as a, you know, a photorealist artist. But like I, I could fucking nail that, I think. Yeah, I remember waiting <laughs> at a film screening outside of the ladies room for the girl I was with to come out and Mikhail Gondry was waiting next to me. We both just had this, ah, come on thing. It'll be just like a moment of my life that he'll never remember. Just like quietly for like two or three minutes, impatiently waiting with Gondry outside of a bathroom. That's amazing. That also reminds me actually of a, a moment that a friend of mine had with uh, Jeff Goldblum. And she had met him outside of, he was in a play and she had met him out of the play. And like, you know, she came over and said, oh, Jeff, I'm a big fan of yours. And he just looked, and she was pretty short and he's very tall and he just looks down at her and he goes, precious. <laughs> I was like, that is the most Jeff Goldblum uh, experience, most likely. But also, actually, when I was a kid, I met um, Gilbert Godfrey. Oh, really? Because my father was working on, I think it was some sort of commercial or, or like just, I, I don't really know what it was, actually. I was, I was like too young to really know. What I it assume was. he was doing the voice. Like a spot. No, it was, his, it was, he was there in person. No, I mean, but his, like his put upon oh, voice. Oh, well, right. So that was the thing was that I knew him as from Asiago from Aladdin. <laughs> and I was very excited because that was like my favorite movie. And uh, he, it was so funny when I realized that wasn't his real voice. Yeah. And then I made him laugh because I, I made some joke like as a child about how the subways were empty because it was a Jewish holiday. <laughs> That's all I remember about that. But he was super friendly too. Have were you, you disappointed it wasn't his voice? No, but it was, he was very quiet. You know, it's like the type of thing where you realize like now, like, yeah, he was a comedian. Like it wouldn't have shocked me now, right. but as a kid I was like, oh wow, he's like super serious, super quiet. Like he was friendly, but not like gregarious, you know? And yeah. I just expected him to be like Iago 24 seven. Was he doing his pure natural speaking voice? Off camera. 
Really? Because that's a very rare thing. Because it, it, like recent history, he's he's done it less and less. Yeah. It seems like maybe back in the day, he would just do like 50-50. But like there's only one like audio clip online, which is from a, a Stern episode where he called in and left a voicemail saying when he would be available to do the show again. And he did it in his natural speaking voice and they played it on Stern while he was there. And he's kind of like laughing at it and like laughing at how like weird he sounds and stuff. But he's kind of, you can tell like he's kind of a little like uh, bothered by it. And so he he does it way less and less. He mostly just does his Gilbert Gottfried voice like 99% of the time. You got the Gottfried facts, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the resident uh, Gottfried expert. He actually has a really good uh, podcast. If you uh, if you like podcasts, and I assume you do, since you're listening to this one, you should check out his. He talks to a lot of like old movie people, and uh, he mostly just talks about old movies. He had a uh, Steve Buscemi on about a week ago, and he knows practically nothing about Steve Buscemi, and was mostly just talking about like old TV with him. Like, what? So, what did you watch when you were a kid and <laughs> stuff like that? Where they're it was just like the most oh, like... Oh, man, I want to get on that one. Oh, it's a great fucking podcast. Oh, this one for that one. Yeah. My college used to... A lot of movies used to shoot there. Um, they would double it for a lot of like... Because it's a lot of old um, 1850s era stone buildings and everything. So they'd double it for a lot of like esteemed universities and, you know, like old places and this and that. And there's like a big gorgeous church in there. So it just turns up and stuff all the time. So we get people in and out all the time and, you know... Some people would be like really into it. And for the most part, people didn't care. But there was one actor who is very famous and comes from a, a family of actors who uh, was there doing one movie like my sophomore year. And um, I got in a fight with one of the PAs because he was trying to prevent me from going down this path that I normally like walk <laughs> down to get to class. And I, now I would just you know, do it. But, you know, I'm like kind of a dick sometimes. And like, I didn't like his, I just didn't like his tone. I didn't like the if guy. If it had been any other PA. Yeah. Any other PA, I would have been like, yeah, no problem. But like, I didn't like this shit. <laughs> so, um, I was like, well, fuck you. And I cut past him and I cut through and I didn't walk into camera, right? but I walked like behind the camera into their eye lines and everything. And I totally blew the take <laughs> and then it was fine. And I went to class or did whatever the hell I was going to do. And, like a year later, he's filming a different movie <laughs> and comes back to the college. And um, there's a scene where he's, you know, talking to somebody or something. And um, there's a little mini crowd of people standing on the outside out of range, just quietly watching. So I got me some ice cream <laughs> uh, with a friend of mine. And we like stroll over like, oh, what's going on over here? So we hop in and we check it out. We're just standing in the... Uh, crowd of people and I'm eating my ice cream and you know sort of like in his periphery and like he keeps like kind of flicking his eyes over uh in the middle of the take <laughs> and like eventually kind of like blows the take because he sees <laughs> me again there and I don't know if he knew where he remembered me from but like something clicked <laughs> so I'm waiting to see if we run into each other a third time yeah if I'm just like the bad penny in his life <laughs> That's amazing. He's probably wondering if you even exist at this point. Yeah, or if I'm just like a ghost who died on prom that he just like sees every now and again. Oh, just man. like a spectral figure ruining his life every now and again. So that's a cautionary tale on yeah. how to deal with Don't these get in things. people's do eye lines. Yeah. 
It was a, it was a very Larry David kind of uh, <laughs> occurrence in your life, especially the ice cream aspect. Yeah. <laughs> Feeling that there the was, ice cream was really what yeah, which I think settled it the second time <laughs> around. <laughs> the repetitive motion of the plastic spoon going up and down in the glimmering sunlight. You especially know, it's probably because like hard to miss. It's such a silent food, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like you're getting in the way in the sound aspect, but just the yeah. visual of the ice cream coming up to the mouth <laughs> over and over. <laughs> That's enough to just drive you mad. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, I guess that would be the advice. Don't be a dick. Don't uh, get in people's eye lines. Don't ask questions. Uh, what else? Don't eat from the craft service table. That's yeah. always like... <laughs> if you're going to do that, you can. You have to get there very early and you have to flirt with the woman setting the table up. That makes sense. And then she'll probably give you that. I pulled that off one time. Never pulled it off again. <laughs> but one time I managed to get a muffin. Nice. Was it good muffin? It wasn't great. <laughs> it clearly wasn't like their A muffin. In New York City, the craft service is usually just lined up on the sidewalk. And it's not like there's nobody guarding it, really. I yeah. mean, it's just kind of there. And it's just this roll, row of like food and waters and drinks and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's very tempting. Theoretically, you, you could... It, it looks like Thanksgiving. Yeah, if a homeless person walked up and grabbed something, nobody would do anything. They yeah. would just be like, whatever. And I think it, the same rule would go for like most civilians unless it became like a thing. It, like if two people do it, then it's like, hey, guys, what are you doing? But somebody just walks up casually, just grabs an apple. Nothing bad's going to happen. You might get so, yelled yeah, at, like but they're Latin. not going gonna... to chase you on the rooftops. Or right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you, yeah, you can graze the uh, craft services. I wouldn't, though. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. There's like a matter of honor with that one. You know, just leave them alone. With do that. it once. Don't, don't take their food. Get, get one in. I Go. do think, though, if you stand there all day, if you're really committed to it, if you're there all day and you're just like waiting and people are like, well, who are you waiting for? Because occasionally the, the crew will be like, what? Like, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> It'll be like, I love whoever, you know, like, and <laughs> then maybe you'll get a muffin out of it. Maybe. Sometimes people take pity on you. They're that like, this guy of, really has been you waiting. You should stand there all day and just say you're like a big fan of the grip. <laughs> I like the gaffer. I love yeah. that best boy. Yeah. That, his work, man. Bring just that best boy over to me. Really yeah. inspires me. I want to see how he does it. Yeah. That uh, actually happened to me once. I just remember it. It was me and my friend when we were ace like 12 or something. Is like uh, we were watching some commercial that they were filming. It's usually a car commercial around this neighborhood, I, I find. And like, we were just interested in like the process and stuff. And we started talking to like one of like the PAs and like, he kind of was like, yeah, you can like, you can come into like where we're like actually filming the stuff. Cause we were just standing around on the peripherals. So like we went in and then I think like either my friend or me, like we went and we like, we were like really, really thirsty. So we like left that area and like went and got like a water from like one of the guys at the cart and then like walked back in. And then like, there was this other guy and he was like, no, you can't come in here. Like, what are you doing? Like, why would you think you could come in here? And we're like, um, cause the, the guy, I mean, he, he said we could and stuff. And like, he was being like really, really fucking mean to us. And we're just kids. And it was like, you didn't have to do that. But like, it was just, it sucks. Cause like we were, we had like this great, like eyeline of what everyone was doing, but we got too thirsty. <laughs> Film sets are very good cop, bad cop. Yeah. There's always a lot of, you know, like fresh young rookies who are looking to give you a break. And then the hardened guys who've been there for 40 years and know the streets and, you know, you're not getting away with anything with them. Yeah. He was treating us like we were away. stealing something or whatever. Like we had just like shoplifted or whatever. Like it was like, well, you have a whole strike plan on the craft service table, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't actually stolen from a craft services. I should say that 
Like this isn't something I've done, but I believe in it. It's something I believe in. (laughs) (laughs) It's not something I've ever put into practice, but I believe that it's, you know, if you shoot, especially if it's your block, like if, if somebody's shooting on your block. See, that changes it. Yes. Yeah. In that way, yeah. Yeah, if it's on your turf, I think in a lot of ways, they're on your rules. Oh, yeah. yeah. This one commercial did actually a really good thing. There was like some car commercial on my block once and they put in like a lot of like plants to make the, the block look like it had more like plants on the outside of houses and shit, which it was kind of like offensive because it was like, come on, our, it's a nice block. We don't need that, but whatever. But they, they did a nice thing where they they would normally like just take the plants back with them or whatever. And they just decided to just gift them to the block. Oh, that is nice. Suddenly everybody had like flowers in front of their houses and like little trees and like shrubberies and stuff. And it was like really fucking nice. Cause like you really take over a fucking block when you shoot on a block, like nobody can park there. It's tough to, you know, walk yeah, you can't your leave normal your house. route. You can, yeah. Bear, yeah, you can't, there was, there were parts where I, I couldn't fucking leave my house because they were shooting right in front of it. And like, if I'd stepped out of my door, like I just get like all these glares like that, that happened to me once during it where like everybody was just looking at me, like all the crew was just looking at me and I was just, you should have seen how long you could just stand there. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I kept going and I just like went and walked and like went up the block and went where I needed to go. Cause I had to fucking leave. But um, like you could feel it. It was just fucking daggers. It was yeah. like I was walking over like their fucking sandcastle that they had built or something. But yeah, that's uh, I guess that's the advice, right? All right, we are going to wrap it up. Thanks, everybody. Any any parting words before we go? I am on a tear, an absolute tear of watching every single Elvis film that was ever shot. Yeah, if you're uh, listening now and you haven't checked out her uh, first Elvis piece for the site, go up there and uh, check that out. Yeah, I, I've been writing them. I've, I'm about nine in right now. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of them written. They're, they'll be published eventually. And yeah, what day. number does the suicidal depression set in? So maybe nine. Yeah. <laughs> this one was a bad one? Let's say, you know, like a, you know, everyone kind of hears about how, uh, you know, Blue Hawaii kind of set the, you know, the stamp for yeah, basically everything else. Yeah. I didn't realize how quickly it <laughs> drops off from Ouch. Blue Hawaii. The next film was all, like so god awful that like i really need everyone who's listening to read all of my stuff so you can watch my journey yeah because i'm now like i'm now doubting myself (laughs) (laughs) there should be a little thermometer on the side of your reviews like a picture of your face (laughs) and like a percentage point like how close you are to breaking it's gonna be like those pictures of obama where they have a picture of obama before like he went into office and then they have a picture (laughs) of him now and it looks like he's aged about like 25 years yeah you guys thought this was highlights no it's just gray (laughs) can we get the the crack team on making like a little (laughs) jenna Jenna, thermometer jenna thermometer how close you are Uh, it's gonna end up by the end of it it's gonna be like um you know marlon brando like i saw a snail (laughs) crawl along the edge of blue suede shoes i don't know (laughs) what about you yeah what have you been watching what'd you watch uh i went on a little mini marathon of all the mutiny on the bounty movies Hmm. the other day i reread the book i've been literary wise i've been reading a lot of shipwrecks lately (laughs) and like sea disasters i've I've been on a sort of bitten by the bug of maritime disaster master and commander (laughs) i love master and commander the best it's really been working for me so i reread the mutiny on the bounty books which i hadn't read since i was a kid and i didn't expect to like hold up that well like the story's good but whatever they're like the best books i've ever fucking read really so it's like all right time to go back to the movies we'll see how they hold up 
And there, for those of you who don't know, there are technically four, but like practically speaking, three versions of Mutiny on the Bounty. There's a 1933 one with Errol Flynn that doesn't really count because it's like half documentary and it's like, it's like a History Channel special almost. Mm. It's like a reenactment. So it doesn't really count. What they really count are the 1935 one with Charles Lawton as Captain Bly and Clark Gable as um, Fletcher. And then the 1962 one with uh, Trevor Howard as Captain Bly and Marlon Brando as Fletcher. And the 1984 one with Anthony Hopkins as Bly and um, Mel Gibson as Fletcher. And like each one of them, I think, is like one of the best casts you could ever put together for a movie. Mm. And they're all, again, I hadn't seen them since I was like 12, but all three of them I remember like loving. So I went back to them and the, the 35 one is the closest to the book in that it's not from the perspective of either Fletcher or Bly, but from a third character, Roger Byam. And like that kind of weighs it down a little bit because you kind of just want the duality of the two of them and you want like that right. fight right at the forefront. But it's... um I mean, the performances are incredible, and it's really uh, the 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 scenes of the trial are probably the best done in the whole series. And then the '62 one, which was the other big box office disaster, alongside Cleopatra, it was two years before Cleopatra, and it was famously like Brando destroyed the production. But it was a huge movie. It, it was the last movie I think shot in 2.70 to one ratio. Really, incredibly super wide. Damn, this gorgeous like glittering that's like just a straight line <laughs> yeah I, it's unreal and what they did for it was they rebuilt to the exact specifications from the blueprints the bounty and they painted it up and they just have like an exact recreation of the bounty in it and that's the center of the movie and that one um it's a very interesting watch because they shot it pretty much chronologically so you can in a way that i really haven't seen in another movie you can watch the production come apart like the very early scenes are really there's a lot of complexity in them and they're really interesting and the, and the characters are really tight and tense and everybody's really on point. And as it goes, it starts to become like the classics illustrated version of it mm. where like it starts to get like really vague and they just sort of like, they'll like lay the scenes down in front of you. Mm. And they won't have a beginning or a middle or an end. They'll just be like, just fucking deal with it. That's a shame. But um, the good parts are incredible. The whole sequence in Tahiti, I think is is the best in all of them of depicting Tahiti. Overall, it's really a very good movie. There's a lot in it. There's one part where um, this guy gets teared apart, torn apart by sharks while they're keel hauling him, which also never happened. Uh, it's the farthest <laughs> from the it's the farthest from the actual bounty story. The story of the bounty is that Captain Bly. Um, they argue now whether or not he was a bad captain. I think he was a mediocre captain in a bad system, but he. Uh, in the 62 movie, he's played as like a flogging captain. Like he really is beating the crew and mm. killing them and everything. He wasn't like that at all. He actually had fewer floggings than other British commanders at the time. The trouble was <laughs> he was meaner than everybody else. And he would um, accuse people of things like publicly in front of everybody and like really tear people apart. He'd tear apart like the first mate and the second mate in front of everybody and really embarrass them over and over. And that was a big part of why the mutiny happened. But anyway, he's a flogging captain of the 62 one. So there's one part where he keel hauls this guy and he gets torn apart by sharks. And they're playing this little musical beat, this like little sting. And I'm convinced it's exactly what the Jaws theme came from. Because ah. it's just these two low like violin notes over and over for the whole scene. Nice. You got to hear it. It's, it's very subtle. I never caught it before, but it's the Jaws theme. So then the 84 one, which is just called Bounty. This is like the black sheep of them. This is the one everybody hates. It's the Hopkins uh, Gibson one. And the supporting cast is 
Lawrence Olivier, Daniel Day-Lewis, and a young Liam Neeson. Jesus. The cast is unreal. <laughs> it is so unbelievably good. I can't, I can't even wrap my head around the audience that saw it and didn't like it. What's the complaint? I have this theory that audiences in the 80s, I used to have this theory that movies in the 80s were bad. Now I'm starting to think audiences in the 80s were, and I hate to ever like put this on a culture or time and place, but I think they were just fucking stupid. <laughs> and I think- That sounds right. <laughs> like you can see it in the reception movies like Mike's Murder or Eyewitness or right. a lot of those complex early 80s oh, movies yeah. that started to disappear. And this is like that. They really didn't have a taste for movies that weren't fairly uh, easy to digest struggle between good and evil. Hmm. Like that was really what the 80s you needed in your movie. And, and um, you actually get that from all the other versions of Mutiny on the Bounty, but not the Bounty, which is the only one to go into um, the actual violence of the mutiny itself and the, the failure of the mutiny to that society. What happened after the mutiny was they sent Captain Bly off in a little, little yacht, basically, to his death. And the mutineers took over the ship. And the mutineers tore each other apart, and um, only one of them survived. And it just descended into chaos. And Bly took his crew with limited supplies, rode them 3,000 miles across the Pacific, and got them to safety. And what they still say is, like, maybe the single most impressive feat of navigation ever in naval history. Mm. He did it all without a, uh, I think, with, a, with, like, a single compass. Wow. He did it. He didn't have a sextant or anything. So, um... The Bounty is the only one that gives you that side of Bly and that side of Christian. And the acting is so raw. Mm. The acting is unbelievable. I mean, the 62 one probably has the best camera work. And structurally, I would think the 35 one has the best pacing. But just the the rawness of the emotions and the the like, it has that feel like a Geary where you feel like you're like looking into people's hearts. Wow. You know, it, it's just... I love the bounty. I'm I'm at the point now where rewatching this and thinking about some of the other movies. I'm at the point where I think Mel Gibson might have been the best actor of the 20th century. Mm. And I would say anybody who disputes me on that one, <laughs> go watch the bounty. Right, it's alongside Hopkins, Olivier, Daniel Day Lewis, and Liam Neeson, who are all putting in career high performances. I mean, everybody's totally on point. And Gibson is you cannot take your eyes off of him. He is unreal in that movie. Is it like a 70s movie trapped in the 80s or something? It feels like maybe like an early 70s, late 60s movie. Mm -hmm. It has that sort of freewheeling thing to it. It's just a very, I mean, parts of it feel like much later. It has parts of it that feel like stuff you wouldn't see until maybe like five, 10 years ago in terms of like, you know, how just bitter a fight between your your two anti-heroes can get. Right. And then there are like visually it's sort of, feels very 80s and it has a has a synth score and everything which is really good it's the same it's vangelis who did the blade runner score oh i love vangelis yeah it has that same sort of score as blade runner hmm. and it looks pretty early 80s but yeah like the spirit of it is very new hollywood and that one is the only one of the three on netflix i would say all three of them are very much worth watching i think the the mutiny on the bounty and invasion of the body snatchers i think have the best track records of any story to film where mm. each one of them got three masterpieces made in a different era. Right. And I really, all three of the Mutiny of the Bounty movies are like as good a time as you can have at the movies. But the the third of them, The Bounty, which is on Netflix, I think is really the one worth critical reassessment. Damn. I'm glad I asked you what you've been watching. <laughs> <laughs>
Holy shit. So let me tell you about the critical reassessment of uh, Elvis and Blue Hawaii. <laughs> what you got? That's all I got. Nope, I don't have anything. I actually think that Elvis on a ship would be a great movie. Maybe that one's coming up. There's got to be like at least five with that. Here's the thing. I'll tell you, you know, you know, I, I write this in the articles, but Elvis, when he was young, there, there's a real raw, talk about raw power. He would have been a good emotion. Fletcher Christian. Yeah. He really would have. Why not? He, uh, he has that sort of, the thing about Fletcher was he was like the only aristocrat on the boat. Everybody else is kind of like a working, working mm. class blue collar guy. Like Bly was very much like a self-made man. Christian was sort of like a, a nobleman. Not in a big way, but you know, like the gentry. And uh, and his descent from that into wanting to like not leave the island of Tahiti and covering himself with the tattoos and like really like plunging into Tahitian native culture. Like Elvis probably could have pulled it off. Yeah, he actually, that's the one thing I have sort of realized is that Elvis wasn't a bad actor at all. He did a pretty good sort of James Dean kind of like uh, a little teen angst, but like just enough that you believe him. The problem is just that they never let him stop being Elvis, you know, like they yeah. put him in a good role, but he still have the hair or yeah. like they'd still have to sing an Elvis song or like they put him in a shitty role and he'd do a really good job at what he had, but he didn't really have much to work with. And so like I have, I actually am really, and I, I like Elvis coming into it, but I'm, I'm like kind of like really gaining a, an appreciation for him as an actor and also like there's a sadness with it actually mm -hmm. it's you can really see even so so soon in this sort of decline yeah even when he comes back from the army there's something really just sort of dead in him and and while he was in the army so much shit went down like he yeah his mother died he got it like addicted to barbiturates mm. <laughs> like uh he met his future wife you know like all this sort of crazy stuff was happening and you can kind of see it in his eyes maybe i'm projecting i'm probably projecting but i feel like he really you can tell there's a big difference between a movie like King Creole, which I really enjoyed. I like genuinely a good film straight up. Like, like, holy crap, did not expect it to be just shot. Well, paced well, no music out of place. Everything fits in perfectly. And then the next movie being, um, GI blues, which was just like, man, even Elvis is like, like he just looks glazed over. Right. You it's know, an interesting thing when you do like a long term marathon like that. Yeah. When I watched all the, especially when you know a little bit of the biography of the people you're, you know, watching. When I did, uh, I've watched I think sixty five John Ford movies at this point, and like a lot of them I watched pretty quickly in a row and almost chronologically. And you can, you can kind of see the same sort of progress. Like if you know, like when you know where they are in life, like all of a sudden. After the war, Ford's first movie was My Darling Clementine, which is maybe his his saddest post-war movie. And they were all kind of sad after the war, but like even just visually, it's very dark and it's rainy and it's, you know, it's like you can sort of see them come in and out of these funks and into these sort of like grace periods and you can you can like feel a lot of their personality. It was the right. same thing when I was watching yeah. the Homer movies. You could like, you could see when he realized his career collapsed, mm. like little things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to pair, uh, you should hire an intern and have your intern watch all the Sinatra movies and then like compare notes. I thought that was going to be you. <laughs> all right. I'll be your Sinatra intern. <laughs> I think it'd be like cool to compare because Sinatra somehow really managed to like play a lot of very different and pretty bad people. He, you know, he played like a serial killer and he played a presidential assassin and this and that. And he got, he got the complex stuff they wouldn't give to Elvis. I think, well, Elvis just had the Colonel kind of fucking him over. Basically, yeah. unfortunately, I'm starting to see that. But Sinatra maybe had slightly more choice, but not really. Yeah. They have an interesting dynamic, though. Definitely. 
you know, because Sinatra hated Elvis. Yeah. And then uh, Elvis did a movie with Sinatra's uh, girlfriend at the time, Juliet Prowse or Prowse. I don't know. But um, they they had a fling. And Sinatra, mm-hmm. the, the sort of story goes that Sinatra turned around and was like, hey, if you want to keep both of those legs shaking, lay the fuck off. It's <laughs> funny. He's one of the only guys who could say that, you know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that <laughs> that's the end of that little tryst. And then after he came back from the army too, actually, apparently Sinatra wanted him on his talk show, the Sinatra show. And the Colonel remembering how much he had shat on Elvis previously basically said, we'll come on your show, but you have to pay us more than the money that you make on your show. Oh, wow. And Sinatra did it. Mm. So like, you know, I, man, now I want to see Mutiny on the Bounty with Sinatra as Bly Holy <laughs> yes. and Elvis as oh, Fletcher Christian. All right. I think we've solved world. This is hunger. why we need yeah, time travel problems. <laughs> this is why we need time travel. This is why folks. every episode we need to just like start free will in a movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The freaking Waldo one, by the way, guys. Yes. 100%. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite thing that's ever happened. Are you going to be a top tier Kickstarter investor for that one? one? Yes. 100%. Waldo needs to have him. All right. Thanks a lot for listening and see you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>